You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Live from London, this is Midori House. I'm Ben Ryland. On today's show, the US gets a new Congress tomorrow. But that government shutdown, well, it looks set to roll on for a lot longer. Also ahead. It blows my mind that it took the killing of a Washington Post journalist for everyone to go, oh, I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, yeah, no shit. He's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. The American comedian Hassan Minaj catches the ire of the Saudi government, but should Netflix have pulled his comedy series? Joining me for analysis are the former diplomat John Everard and the journalist Michael Goldfarb. Plus, China makes its plans for Taiwanese unification bluntly clear. And if your New Year's resolution was to finally write that screenplay, well, will tell you why 2019 could be your year. That's all to come on Midori House, starting now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are John Everard, the former British diplomat who's held posts in Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea, and Michael Goldfarb, an author and journalist based right here in London. Happy New Year to you both and welcome to our first program for 2019 as well. On a day that also happens to mark the conclusion of the 115th US Congress, the 116th Congress will arrive tomorrow to a government in the midst of a shutdown down as fiery debate continues over President Trump's plan for a border wall. I must say a plan that's not looking too good at the moment. Michael, it's always a a blame game, isn't it? One suspects Trump thinks this is all hurting the Democrats at the moment. Is he right? Probably not. One of the things that happened in the last month of 2018 is that a lot of key staff kind of just left and they had basically checked out over the previous 60 days. So the last quarter, he's had no good advice. Not that he listens to much good advice. This was a fight he didn't need to pick. Um, The wall is this thing for his base. Everybody knows there's not going to be a wall. There might be new stretches of barrier. And to shut the government down with a new Democratic House of Representatives coming in, led by a woman, Nancy Pelosi, who actually knows how to use the legislative process to get what she wants. I think it's a fight he didn't need. So what we're going to see over the next week or so is is there'll be, I mean, haggling and whether there's actually going to be some kind of funding. This is the, the critical thing, that in a budget bill, a continuing resolution to keep the government open, there will be money for funding the wall. Um, my guess is there won't be as much as he wants. It'll be cosmetic, and they'll all get back to work eventually. But for now, it's a useless waste of time. But then, what's the Trump presidency in a word? A useless waste of time. (laughs) Well, John Everard, uh, I suspect that Donald Trump might say that there's no such thing as a a bad fight. Uh, Picking fights is really a hallmark of his leadership style, if you could call it that. And at the moment, at least, he seems to be dictating the terms of the discussion, even if that discussion isn't necessarily a positive one. Is it perhaps still doing him some good for Trump to be seen to be out there packing some punches? 
I don't think it's true that there's no such thing as a bad fight. A bad fight is one in which you look stupid to your own base. And I think Trump runs a real risk of precisely that happening. He has to deliver this wall. He staked his political credibility on it. And every time uh, he has these great Nuremberg-style rallies, uh, the base bay for the wall. They don't actually care what it looks like, whether it's effective or anything. It's, just, it's become iconic, which means that Nancy Pelosi, uh, Mike's quite right. I mean, Nancy uh, Pelosi knows all about how to use the rules. She can hold him to ransom. This is real power over the president. I think, I agree that this was a fight he didn't need to pick. I think he was very foolish to pick it. Yeah, and what's interesting is, you know, John Kelly, who we've spoken about often over the last, I guess, year and a half, that he was actually the chief of staff in the White House gave an exit interview. He left his post, um, I guess he left at the end of the year, but he gave an exit interview to the Los Angeles Times, and it was really interesting because they brought up the wall, and he said, well, really, everybody knows there's not going to be a wall, there's not going to be a concrete structure. It's something that's out there. It's a political um, sap to the base, you know, to make it seem like we're going to keep all of these dreadful illegal aliens out of our pure white country. Um so if your own chief of staff knows that it's not going to happen, and probably Donald Trump knows it's not going to happen, why bother? But that's just the way the guy rolls, and he's got no effective check on him. So um, it'll be a loss, I think. The other interesting thing, Ben, that came out today was that um, Mitt Romney, who was the Republicans' nominee in 2012, um, penned this really quite fiery editorial opinion piece in the Washington Post. He's just been elected to the Senate from Utah. And he really ripped Trump apart for being divisive and not doing the essentially presidential thing. Which, of course, wouldn't be a necessarily a surprise coming from someone like Mitt Romney. However, it did read as if it were coming from someone, uh, certainly it was being said in the voice of someone who fancied himself a president. We know that Mitt Romney wants to be president. He's tried more than once. But it, it has prompted some people to suspect that maybe he's giving it another go. I, you know, this is a thing... <sighs> This is only day two of 2019. I don't think we should be talking about 2020 yet. Although, let's face it, I mean, in Washington, that's all they're talking about. It's as if 2019 is not going to happen. The assumption is that, pre that Trump will be, you know, running for president again. <laughs> they forgot about Robert Mueller, might present some evidence to the public that might lead to his being thrown out. And I do wonder if, if part of the motivation for Romney's article was to say, look, you know, I will now take up the place in the Senate that John McCain occupied. I will be the Republican who stands up to Trump and tries to bring some honor and decorum back to American politics. Well, I'm not sure have, it's about 2020. A lot of people have suggested that Romney is fancying himself at least as the next Jeff Flake. A part of what he wrote in the Washington Post was that with the nation so divided, resentful and angry, presidential leadership in qualities of character is indispensable. And it is in this province where the incumbent's shortfall has been most glaring. Now, Trump's rather characteristic response to that was, I won big and he didn't. Uh, John Everard, uh, Trump's winning strategy here is to take politics and turning, turn it into a bit of an entertainment vaudeville act, isn't it? And uh, that's exactly what he's trying to do here. Just just make them laugh and they'll stop thinking about the, the rather uh, serious issues at the heart of what's being said here. Can Mitt Romney perhaps take on Trump with something as old-fashioned as politics? 
Yes, I think he probably can. But I think there's a broader issue here. You're right. I mean, Trump's uh, first instinct is to reach for his vaudeville script machine. That works with his dedicated base. I mean, the people who come and cheer him at all his rallies, they just lap this stuff up. His problem is that is no longer enough. To keep the majority he needs to keep governing, he needs to keep moderate Republicans at least acquiescent, if not enthusiastic, about his uh, his government. And Mitt Romney is a big hitter. If Mitt Romney comes out and says, this guy sucks, which is effectively what this uh, op-ed says, a lot of Republicans are going to read that and think. And you can see, step by step, creep by creep, uh, that Trump's control over the Republican Party is slowly eroding. It's contracting back to his core base, and his core base is not enough. But how how far away does Trump's control of the Republican Party need to to drift in order for the Republicans to feel as though they need to do something about this? Because that's really the, the key question, isn't it? We've got a lot of Republicans who would fancy themselves as being able to do a much better job as president than, than this current guy can. But it would take a very special someone to actually step forward and say, actually, I'm the guy that can do it. I, well, it's very hard to put numbers on this, but I think broadly the answer is how far does it need further to drift? Not very far. We have a new slew of senators coming in. Uh, a lot of, I mean, Mitt Romney is not the only uh, member of the Senate with high political ambitions. And I think that him setting out a signal that he at least wants to put deep blue water between himself and President Trump, a lot of the others will start to think, hmm, Mitt may have a point here. Maybe I too need to set out a separate stall just for my own political survival. You know, when the ship goes down, and it's a when, not an if, these guys want to be swimming. Exactly. One of the interesting things is as the numbers drifted in towards the end of the year of, of the the deep results of the midterm elections, the, um, you, you, the Democrats increased the number of their the amount of their overall vote by a factor of almost six million women who voted for Trump because they didn't like a lot of middle class white women didn't like Hillary voted Democrat this time around. Those things are all out there. Mueller will come and he will make his he will present his report. And now, because the Democrats have control of the House of Representatives, they have control of the budget process, they will be have control of a subpoena process that allows them to do their own investigating of all manner of aspects of Trump's personal financial situation. And I do think that, that what Mitt Romney is it is about clear blue water, and I'm sure that there's, you know, courage is not a is not a feature of the contemporary Republican Party. They found, by luck, this guy who was able to ram through for them in a demagogic fashion their Supreme Court nominees and their tax cuts. Now they've got an economy that is going to be in, in considerable difficulty because of this massive deficit that comes from those tax cuts. Anybody could have told them it would happen. And they've got what they need from him. And I think that they're, you know, if Mitt Romney thinks... He can be the one to to at least plant a flag and say, you know, you can rally around me over here and I will fight. Fine. I also think, you know, I don't think impeachment is on the cards necessarily, but be, because the Republicans have the majority in the Senate and the, the way the impeachment process works is Trump would be impeached in the House and he'd be tried in the Senate. And if Mitt Romney is saying, well, you know, if I can find 10 of you to agree with me and then we can go to the 
Democratic senators, then there is a possibility of impeachment, and then you can force a resignation, which is what happened with Richard Nixon. He was never tried or impeached, but the Republican leadership in the House, in the Senate, went to him and said, look, if it comes to the Senate, we're going to impeach you. Mm -hmm. So he resigned. And I think that that is a scenario I can see happening over the next six to nine months. Just before we wrap up on on this uh, speculation, uh, rather early speculation, as it always is when we talk about U.S. politics, uh, on Mitt Romney's potential uh, presidential bid, one of his biggest flaws, thinking back to the last time that he he tried to be president, was that uh, he's a very wealthy man. He's a, a successful businessman. It was very hard to present Mitt Romney as a man of of the people. He was always coming across as a friend of of big business and of course, how times change. Now we have Donald Trump in the White House. But on one hand, Donald Trump does have a point when he presents Mitt Romney as someone who has tried to be president and has lost more than once. So he's going to have plenty of ammunition against Mitt Romney. Why should this time be any different for Mitt Romney? Why should we now look at him differently? Has Trump's election changed the political landscape to enough of a degree to make Mitt Romney somehow the sensible choice now? I Sensible choice? Maybe. I, I think, yes, the political landscape has changed a great deal. I, I think that after Trump, America will never be quite the same again. And I think, too, that Mitt Romney has changed. Uh, the man has learned quite a lot. If you read you know, the tenor of his, his recent remarks, and I'm not referring just now just to the op-ed uh, in the Washington Post that we're talking about, uh, but to various other speeches, and you compare them with the Mitt Romney of 2012, this man has come a long way. I think he's now a much more plausible presidential candidate. Well, let's move along now to China, where the president over there has warned that Taiwan must accept that the country will be reunited with China. Xi Jinping made the comments during a speech marking 40 years since the warming of relations between Beijing and Taipei. It's not a surprising position for China to take. But John, what are we to gain from the tone here? Uh, is the Chinese president simply setting the stage for 2019? Or is he perhaps trying to extinguish any push for true independence before that actually takes place? I think that certainly the latter, quite possibly the former too. Uh, he One thing that came out very clearly from the speech was that if Taiwan does declare independence, uh, all hell will break loose. And uh, there were ominous references to a refusal to deny, uh, to, to, for China to deny itself the right to use military force if necessary. Lots of emollient words about uh, vast possibilities of peace reunification, although he didn't really explain how uh, this was going to happen. Uh, but it was, in general, a, a very tough speech. Uh, this was a, a, a hard-line speech by a hard-line leader uh, with almost complete control of China, and who, I fear, may want to make Taiwan, the, or the reabsorption of Taiwan into China, uh, part of his political legacy. Not a good day for Taiwan. What's, the, uh, what's really the driving motivation behind all of this? Because from the outset, you you can look at this and, and suspect, well, maybe here are two sides who are potentially warring sides. However, neither one of them perhaps wants to escalate things too far. So we've got really an exercise of both sides really wanting to appear as though they're quite tough. However, really also wanting to to maintain the status quo. Neither side really wants to to be responsible for the spark that that creates everything that that's, that launches everything into an eruption. 
The Taiwanese aren't playing tough. I mean, Tsai Ing-wen's speech was uh, a model of moderation, uh, saying that she rejected the one country, two systems approach that uh, Beijing is touting. I mean, that's the one they apply to Hong Kong. Who in their right minds is going to go for that out of their own free will? Uh, but otherwise, uh, the whole tenor of her speech was conciliatory. No, it's Beijing that's trying to raise the temperature. Uh, is Beijing prepared to go uh, over the top and to actually use military force? I think the answer is probably yes. If it came to it, if Xi Jinping thought either that Taiwan was about to slip permanently outside uh, China's grasp or that he was running out of time and that his attempts at peaceful reunification had simply not succeeded, then I think he might give the command. Michael, the Chinese president uh, also reserved the right to use force. I mean, that there is no more, there is no threat that's more blunt than that, is there? No, and, and I, on, on this issue, because I don't, I don't know the Far East all that well, and my, my, one of the big surprises of the one trip I, I ever made to China was how many Taiwanese were there. I was giving a talk at Peking University, and I kept meeting young people. And where are you from? And they were all from Taipei. And I thought, huh. I thought I thought I'm an American. I, I thought you guys didn't talk to each other. And the best restaurant I went to in Beijing was a Taiwanese restaurant. The food's really good. Um, my my question is so I have more questions for John. It's like one is this um, just a bit of saber rattling because there have been questions raised about the slackening growth. I mean, it's still overwhelming growth. Of the Chinese economy. I mean, is this saber rattling in the traditional sense of, well, I'm going to focus people on um, uh, the possibilities of conflict offshore to stop them talking about the fact that the economy is slowing down? Um, is, I guess, is it real? Or is this that sense, this, I don't want to make the whole world about Donald Trump, but Vladimir Putin has had some success reclaiming a significant chunk of the Ukraine. And is this a sense of testing America's resolve to come to the defense of Taiwan, which, you know, back in, in the Cold War days, it was an article of faith for Democrats and Republicans that they would regard an attack on Taiwan as an attack that needed to be met militarily by the US. I don't think it's the latter. I think that the last thing that Xi Jinping wants right now is another disagreement with the United States. Heaven's sake, he's got uh, he's got a trade war on and he's got this rather complex relationship with Donald Trump, whom he clearly finds very difficult to handle. Uh, Saber-rattling, yes. Uh, there's there's a lot of that in the speech, particularly significant because remember he gave the speech on the 40th anniversary of China being nice for the first time. Uh, 40 years ago today, China extended what it regarded as the hand of friendship to Taiwan. Uh, said, you know, we will let, let's drop all the saber rattling and try to work something out. And it, in those in that point, it was the Taiwanese who rejected the Chinese approach. But you would have expected a 40th anniversary speech of that kind of development to be much softer than what Xi Jinping actually came out with. As I said, what he came out with was, was going on blood-curdling. The Washington Post, John, conducted an analysis uh, that found about 70% of Taiwanese people believe that their country is already independent. They don't see the country as being part of China at all. Uh, Chinese unification is quite unpopular here. Even if uh, China were to take steps to, to really to follow through on the threats that they've made, that would really only be the start, wouldn't it? They'd have a massive hurdle to overcome to convince people that they were actually Chinese now. Ben, this is China. You don't convince people, you shoot them. 
We will uh, have to leave that particular topic uh, behind, but we've got plenty more to come. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Ben Ryland. John Everard and Michael Goldfarb also here with the program today. Coming up next, Netflix wades into controversy after it pulled an episode of a comedy series at the request of the Saudi government. And if you're looking to uh, stage a play, perhaps written in 1923, or perhaps adapt a book into a musical, well, 2019 might be your year. We'll tell you why, coming up next. California, here we come. Monocle has arrived on the West Coast. Our new shop and bureau is open at Platform, the design quarter in Culver City that's home to 100 boutique retail and culinary brands. If you're in town, pop along to meet the team, pick up the latest issue of the magazine and browse our exclusive collaborations. From elegant stationery to smart jackets, plus plenty in the way of print, of course. Discover our range from furniture to fragrances, courtesy of brands from the US and beyond. Intrigued? Then come and see us at our new LA outpost at Platform in Culver City. We look forward to meeting you there. This is Midori House here on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Ryland. Still with me are John Everard and Michael Goldfarb. Netflix has made no secret of its plans for global domination of the streaming age, but the company is now finding the true cost of operating in some parts of the world. The streaming giant was forced to pull an episode of the stand-up comedy program Patriot Act after its host, Hassan Minaj, mocked the Saudi effort to cover up the death of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Netflix says it does support artistic freedom, but that it has to comply with local laws. Others, however, have expressed alarm at Netflix's decision, such as Khashoggi's former editor at the Washington Post, who called the decision outrageous. Now, Michael, uh, companies take tough decisions when doing business in various parts of the world. Sometimes it is simply the cost of doing business there. Is this particular case so unusual? That's a good question, but no, it's not. I mean, we've just been speaking about China. I mean, the, the amount of bending over backwards that American in, uh, companies that stream on the internet, that sell high-tech in, in uh, you know, objects of desire do to get into the Chinese market is is shocking. I mean, they self-censor all the time. Um, in this case, but I think the problem is, one, how big a market is Saudi Arabia? You know, it's not that big. Um, and second, you know, f- it sets a bad precedent for the company, not just in terms of, you know, freedom of expression. But if you think of all the countries where it streams... I, is it out of the question to think that Jair Bolsonaro, who was inaugurated, I guess, today as president of Brazil, might take exception to a documentary about the rainforest that he is going to open up again to loggers? I mean, it, he might say, well, this is an insult to the people of Brazil and to my government. What will Netflix do then? I mean, anybody listening can think of a local political issue in the country where they're listening and can think of how a government might say, you know, we don't like this message and you can't show it. So I think it's actually a bad 
precedent for Netflix. Well, it is indeed a bad precedent. I mean, I, I would need to point out that Netflix already, of course, modifies much of its content for certain regions. The Netflix movie Alex Strangelove is not available in Russia, unsurprisingly considering it's a film about a teenager who comes out as gay. Uh, but film studios have been doing this forever. The actor Richard Gere is no longer cast in Hollywood movies, uh, mostly because of his activism against China. Uh, it, basically, if Richard Gere is in a movie, it will not be distributed in China. And that's a very important market for film studios now. And that's uh, really just uh, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to, to that sort of thing. Uh, but this is it's, it's not an unusual thing, is it, John? And basically, when you're a big company like Netflix or any of the major film studios working in Hollywood, you are basically asking the question. It, it's an existential one. If we don't comply with certain uh, um, requests, shall we put it that way, in various parts of the world, then you do not operate there and someone else does. Yes, I think Netflix's problem here was this was more than a request. They actually served a legal document and faced the agonizing decision of either continuing uh, to show the episode that has so offended the Saudis in the, in, in the face of the law, which in which case you, know, you, you committed criminal offense, uh, or uh, simply going along with, with what the Saudis wanted and, and pulling it, or I suppose alternatively saying we're not prepared to have our artistic integrity compromised in this way and closing down. Now, none of those were easy choices. I don't know how many subscribers they have in Saudi Arabia, but I suspect it's enough to, to make them not want to abandon the market completely. Also, you have to, I mean, we're focusing on this one case. You have to remember that there's been a lot of this going on in Netflix's library in Saudi Arabia. If you compare the number of films available to Netflix users in Saudi Arabia uh, with those available to Netflix users in the United States, it's about one quarter of the number of films are available. Now, Netflix haven't really produced an explanation uh, of this huge discrepancy. Uh, maybe they've been served with multiple legal notices in the past, but it does look a bit less self-censorship, doesn't it? Well, it does. But then, of course, if anyone's ever flown an airline, uh, if you've ever flown on a Middle Eastern airline and you've watched some of the movies that are available on there, chances are you've watched an edited version of that movie without even realising it. Is, are we perhaps being a little bit too harsh on Netflix? Have we, have we expected... A little bit too much. I mean, it's it's nice to consider that Netflix yeah. might take a stand, but is it realistic to consider that they take a stand when when 20th Century Fox, when Warner Brothers? No, I mean, I, I think you make a fair point. And in fact, just now when John was talking, I was reminded of, you know, in the days before the Internet and the possibility of streaming, you know, it was the done thing by Hollywood studios to excise scenes in order to get films exhibited whether it was in Saudi Arabia, whether it was in Russia, whether it was in Western Europe. I mean, there were, you know, well, all, all, the, ma all, all manner. the Jewish names that were taken off the movies during the during Nazi Germany. And, and you know, I mean, gay themed certain religious stuff. I mean, so it's an old game that Hollywood has to play, you know, because it's a business first and an art second. But having said that, I mean, what I think and the reason we're probably discussing it, aside from the sheer size of Netflix, is that the Internet was about freedom and crossing borders and ideas crossing borders or something you know that was in a sense sold to us as a kind of subversive thing and up to a point it was and then china started cutting off this search engine and you know some other place cut off that search engine and suddenly it wasn't so free anymore and i think what we what we're looking at is you know that reality has caught up to the distribution of ideas on the internet. I won't even say content, although Netflix would call it content. You know, that 
we're losing that. That promise is long gone. And we're talking about Netflix, to rem I guess, because it, it's just sad to remember that the promise of the Internet was everything would be across borders, and it's just not going to be the case. The uh, information superhighway, of course, has a few toll roads, it does seem. Uh, we are running out on, on uh, running out of time. Uh, but uh, finally, I would like to get to this final topic because it is quite good news. Uh, if you are like me and have decided that 2019 will be the year when you finally stage that musical that's been hiding away at the back of your mind, well, you might be in luck because for the first time in 21 years, a large collection of works have been passed in, into the public domain following the expiration of their copyright. It means that many works that were first published in 1923 may now be freely staged, adapted, watched or listened to without legal restrictions. Now, that delay was due to an act that was passed in the US back in 98 that added 20 years to existing copyrights, something that's apparently unlikely to ever happen again in the near future. John, is this a good thing? Uh, that these uh, books have come out of copyright, yes, that is a good thing. Let's not get too excited. I mean, international copyright law is a complete dog's dinner. Uh, for example, uh, uh, we have some of the works of Agatha Christie have just come out of copyright. Uh, actually, uh, if you are a British reader of Agatha Christie, you still can't legally read those uh, because under British law, uh, the copyright only lapses 70 years after the death of the author, not the publication of the work. Uh, Agatha Christie died in 1976. So that's uh, 2046. You can, however, solve your problem by going to New Zealand, where the, the lapse is 20 years. And in 2026, you can read everything that Agatha Christie ever wrote. So you can play games around the different interpretations of copyright worldwide. Uh, you, it reaches absurdity. For example, at the moment, you can read some of the English translations of Proust's work, but you can't yet read the French original for a few years to come. <laughs> so, you know, you, we get tied in knots. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, the, the, the headline on all of this is Robert Frost's famous and short poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, is one of these works that is now out of copyright. And I, I've been working on an opera based on this one eight-line poem. I think I'm going to write it. Whose woods are these? I think I know. He lives somewhere in the village, though. And Ben might want to help me fi <laughs> find a way to, to oh, resolve it. It sounds that. as though you're much further down the road. Yeah. I, I just came up with that idea when I was writing the script for tonight's show. Oh, but no, no. I think I think there will be a lot of adaptations. I mean, since nobody's writing original work for Broadway anymore, there's going to be. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's Sinclair Lewis, the, the social realist novelist of the 20s and 30s, who's got a lot of work coming out now under this copyright change. And I don't know if I want to see Babbitt the musical, you know. <laughs> Well, I perhaps won't choose that as the topic for my uh, stage musical adaptation. But uh, I have to say I was fairly excited when I first read about this news. But John Everard, you've managed to really dampen some of my hopes and dreams there. I perhaps won't uh, be making my musical here in Britain. I might have to head to New Zealand to work on that one. Uh, but indeed, that does bring us to the end of today's program. Big thanks to our guests today, John Everard and Michael Goldfarb. Today's edition of Midori House was produced by Bill Looty. It was researched by Paige Reynolds and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Stay tuned for some more music next at 1900 Hours. It's a brand new episode of our business program, The Entrepreneurs, with Daniel Bache in the chair. Midori House is back at the very same time tomorrow. That's 1800 here in London. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you for listening. 